Um, we're going to be in chapter 5 of Revelation today. So if you remember last week, we looked at God on the throne. We saw his glory, his holiness, and, and worship. And, and those things are central to the, th- to the scene. The scene is the, the holiness of God, the glory of God, and the worship of God coming in there. Now chapter 5 shifts a little bit in the throne room, and it shifts to the lamb standing at the center of the throne. So the picture of the throne room dominates the rest of the book. As we go through um, the rest of the book of Revelation, we got to come back to this to see because this is, this is what's being set up to show us to be able to see. And it's an amazing picture of the triune God, of, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit as, as we come in there on the throne. And it forces us to see everything in our world in a new light. It forces us to look at things through a different lens, through a different perspective, to see things not from the perspective of the things going on around us that we see in the world, but to see them from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of the cross, from the perspective of the battle that's already been won and the victory that's ours that, that we live out of today. So John 4 sees things, um, <clears throat> John sees four things in this chapter, and each of those things begin a separate scene. The first one is that God has a plan. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So we have this uh, scroll that that John sees first as he's there in the throne throne room. And as we come in, remember the theme of the book is, is that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things. And as we come in, we look at the scroll. The scroll is God has a plan for redemption And he has a plan for judgment. So we'll look at this a little bit more as as we come in um, and go in here. But it may seem like the world is chaotic. It may seem that, you know, when when we come around, people go, I just don't know what's going to happen. We're in the end times. You know, you'll hear all different manner of description to describe our world around us and the chaos that's that's going on. And, and it may seem like God has forgotten some of his people or he's forgotten the plan or he's forgotten us. And this is far from the truth. As, as we come in and we look at the picture here, we see something um, totally different. Not only is God aware of everything going on in our world, he allows it to happen as part of his plan. He allows it as part of his plan of redemption. So as we come around, we we have to remind ourselves that there's absolutely nothing that happens outside of the permission of God, of his allowing it to happen. And, And sometimes that's hard for us to look at and go, well, how could God allow evil to, to, to run free? And, and we have to see it from the picture of the throne and seeing that ultimately God will judge and God will judge evil. And, and so we're going to pick that up in a few minutes, but it's important. Um, it's an important picture of salvation in this chapter as, as we come in here. So John sees a scroll in God's right hand with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So it, this is a really big document. I mean, it, it would be a, it, it wouldn't be something small. It would, you know, it wouldn't be a little bitty thing. It would be a big thing that um, is there. And, and if you came in 
I mean, it was probably, you know, in, in the Roman world, it'd be papyrus. Papyrus was something that, that they would take these papyrus reeds and they would smash them down and they would lay vertical ones and, and uh, horizontal ones across one another. And then you would write on one side of it. You wouldn't typically write on the other side because the, the lines, you, you would have problems writing against the grain. So they would typically write on one side of these big, long scrolls and, and and in, a, in the Roman world, a will was, would be described in this way. Somebody's will, your last will and testament, would, would be on a scroll. It would commonly have a description of the contents on the back of it. It would be written on the front, but on the back, as they would roll it up on the outside, they would write in, you know, this is the last will and testament of, of uh, you know, whoever, Caesar or whatever. And they would have it, and then they would have seven witnesses who would witness that this was it, and each of the seven witnesses would place their seal on this to say that it was authentic, and and so you would have this this will, and then on the will could not be open. You could not break the seals on it until the person who owned the who the will was for died. So it was executable upon death, and and then a trustworthy executor would put the will into effect once all of these conditions were met. So if this is the historical background, then, then as we look at it, the, the scroll compla- uh, contains God's plan of redemption. It's the plan of God. This is what God has laid out in history. It contains everything necessary for us to understand the history of the world. It, it contains everything that we need to understand our history, our circumstances, our future, our hope. And, and so in the right hand, of God is his plan for the ages as we come in here. This is the plan of God for the ages. The sovereign God is on the throne of history and is <clears throat> and everything is subject to him, no one else. It is his plan, it is his purpose that will prevail. So you may feel like and you look at it and go, hey, my, my world is, is out of control. I have... I, you know, these are the things that I'm facing, and they are beyond anything that I can imagine or know how to deal with or anything there. And this picture reminds us, it's a picture from God to remind us that in our limited ability to see things, um, that, that we should see them instead from a heavenly perspective and understand that, that God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has things laid out and he understands he knows he knows everything he knows our past he knows our present he knows our future and it it shouldn't cause us to question God instead it should remind us that God is for us he has this he holds the plan of all things in his hand in Romans 8:31 it says what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us and if you go on and read there you know neither depth nor you know nothing will separate us from God nothing can defeat us that we are held in his strong right hand as he holds this scroll that's that's humongous and it has everything of his plan and his purpose to to um, to reward the just and to punish the wicked so as we come in there it's it's um, we see that first of all so God has a plan the second thing that John sees is that Jesus alone is worthy he says and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break his seals. 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So in this, God is the only one who can execute this will, and that's who Jesus is. As we come in, we see that God alone, he's the one who can execute this will. He is the one who can execute this this, um, scroll. He can open the scroll. He can divulge its contents, and he can make it known, and, and that's who Jesus is because he is the one who is at, at the throne with God. So we're going to see it in the next scene, but for now, it's the Lion of Judah. That's, that's what um, John says. He says, um, he says, no one in heaven, no one under heaven, no one on earth, nobody's worthy to open this. He's in, he's in heaven with angels, um, angelic beings, all of the heavenly hosts, everything in there. He says, there is nothing, no one, nobody who is worthy. And then, and then he's told, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So as John weeps and looks, he's, he's brought to the point of saying, you know, weeping over the fact that what's going to happen is, is the, will the purpose of God end here? Will, will we see it? Will this happen? And, and then the, one of the elders tells him, no, you can, you can weep no more because the lion of Judah can do this. So we're going to see it, but, but here it is. Jesus alone has the worthy, is worthy to open this seal. In Revelation 4, 11, remember they said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. He's sufficient. He is able. He has everything. To say someone is worthy, it means that they are sufficient to do this. He is sufficient alone. That not only is he sufficient he has the authority to do that. To be worthy means also carries that, that sense of authority. So it's, it's sufficiency, it's authority. He is worthy to do this. He's the one who defeated Satan on the cross. This is why he is worthy to do this. His sacrificial death is what overcomes evil and makes it possible for him to open and read the scroll. So as we come in and we look at the picture coming in past the cross and, and John reflecting it, and, and he, him seeing all of this, and he sees the lion, which, by the way, the lion of Judah, of the root of David, those are messianic titles. Those are titles that the Jewish people used for Jesus um, or for the Messiah who would come, and that's who Jesus is. So um, on the scroll, what, on the cross, what Satan thought was his greatest victory literally is his greatest defeat. It's his utter defeat. What what Satan thought would end everything, Jesus won everything. 
It was the total victory over sin and shame. And, and so when we gaze on the throne, we gaze upon the Lion of Judah. We gaze upon him as we sang about him a while ago. We gaze upon he who alone has the authority and is worthy and sufficient in all things. So as we come in and, and we see and we come in here in this picture on the throne, we begin to see that... Um, God has a plan. He's got a scroll. This is about to unroll. We'll get into it in chapter 6, and we'll begin to unroll this scroll, and, and the seals will break one at a time, and, and we'll go through that. And, and then as, as we come in, we see the one seated on the throne who is able to open, who is worthy to open, who has the authority to open the scroll, and, and he and he alone is because of that. And we'll see in the next few verses why why he is able and why he is worthy because suffering and sacrifice is the way of the kingdom. This is the next thing coming in beginning in verse 6. He says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw. So he sees the next thing. The next thing that he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So as, as we come in here, we see that suffering and sacrifice is the way of the kingdom. So as, as we see in the, in the previous point, you see the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Now when he gazes upon the throne, he sees a lamb that is slain. So we go from the Lion to the Lamb. And, and this is going to be the, the picture that we see of Jesus throughout this book is the Lamb. We don't see him as the Lion so much as we see him as the Lamb who was slain. So this is the picture, and this is what we come and, and we see, and that's the common descriptor for Jesus in this book of Revelation. So the Lion who conquers really seems like what we would expect, right? I mean, when we think of Jesus, we think of him as the lion. We think of him as the one who has conquered sin and death. We think of power. We think of conquest. We think that he is going to come and crush his enemies and, and, and all of those pictures. And that's the very much the way that we see the world and, and we look at it. But when you look and you see how Jesus conquered, Jesus conquered through suffering and sacrifice. When God came to us, he entered into suffering and sacrifice. And that is the picture of the cross. The picture of the cross is a lamb slain. If you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, and you see John the Baptist, and you see Jesus coming, what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, that's the Lion of Judah, that is the Messiah, you better watch out. He said, this is the sacrifice of God. This is the picture of the grace and mercy of God coming in. And <clears throat> so 
what we see take place is suffering and sacrifice. And this is, this is something that we have to take and we have to soak in because it's hard. And, and I'll tell you, when I read this, when I, when I was studying it and coming to it, I, I was just looking at it going, this, this turns the world upside down. This flips everything. <clears throat> and, and it changes. It has to change the way that we think and the way that we approach our world. In Luke 9.23, um, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him t- deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We think about that. And we think of, of, you know, well, we've got to follow Jesus and, and leave things behind. But what Jesus is saying is you've got to follow the path of suffering and sacrifice. As I suffered and sacrificed everything, I am calling you to suffering and sacrifice. Or in John 15, verses 18 through 27, the night that Jesus goes to the cross to be betrayed, that we celebrate at the end of the service as we open up the little plastic things with, you know, um, you know these little things. And, and by the way, be careful to get the clear one. See, you're going to have to do some really fancy stuff to get these goofy things to work. But, um, but they got a little clear one, and they got a foil one. But, but, but um, that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He gave thanks and broke it and said, take and, uh, and eat, this is my body. And that night, if, if you want to see that night in, 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 in the greatest picture that you could ever see, you read John 13 through John 17, and you see, what, you see the last words of a dying man. You see the last words of, of a man who is about to give his life. You see the last words of God who is about to sacrifice everything and suffer everything to redeem man, to win the battle that's been going on. And and Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus, he comes in, he says, look, there will be suffering and sacrifice on your part. The people who hated me, they're going to hate you. The people who hate the message of the cross, they're going to hate the people who represent the cross. The people who hate righteousness are going to hate those who worship righteousness. And it is going to be a path of sacrifice. And it is going to be a path of suffering. And, And if you think about it, I mean, Jesus could have easily, he could have easily obliterated the Romans. He could have obliterated every single 
person. He could have obliterated the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the people smacking him in the face and spitting on him and putting a crown of thorns on his head. He could have, he could have called down a legion of angels. He could, have, he could have just smoked all of those people. All he had to do was just speak the word. But he didn't do it. He chose something far, far different. And, and, and honestly, I mean, if you think about it, which path would we choose? You're about to hurt me. You're about to do this. I'm going to show you. Let me show you. Let me show you who you're messing with. Let me show you what you deserve. Let me show you how the chips are going to fall. And that's not the way that Jesus chose. That's not the path that he took. That's not the direction he went. He redeemed us instead by taking on our sin and our shame. He suffered. He didn't just suffer physically. He suffered spiritually. He suffered emotionally. He suffered at the very depths of his being because he took our sin and shame and he suffered beyond imagination when my sin, just mine, just mine, when my sin alone was credited to him, it was just as devastating as the sins of the world because it's no different. Jesus had never, ever experienced sin. God himself, the perfect heavenly father, had never tasted sin. He had never seen, he, he had never experienced any unrighteousness, ever. And in that moment, the sins of all of humanity was placed on him. And all of his righteousness was drained out and placed on us. Paul put it this way, God made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became our sin, we became his righteousness. We didn't do anything to earn it. So he sacrifices everything for the glory of God and the redemption of man. This is what we see when we see the lamb standing as though it had been slain This is what we see. We see the picture of suffering and sacrifice, and that is the picture of redemption, and and that is the picture of the cross, and the cross is the place of salvation. The cross is the place that we go to for salvation. The cross is the only place that we can go to for salvation. It's not only the place of salvation. It's the place at the foot of the cross where we must come and worship the lamb who was slain, and we must yield ourselves to him and receive his forgiveness and receive his righteousness by trusting in him and following him. Um, It is also the uh, path of salvation. It is the the place that that we come and we (coughs) we begin to follow him on that path, and, and we begin to go down that road as we follow him. When he said, take up your cross daily and follow me, this is what he's saying. This is the path of salvation. It is the place of suffering and sacrifice, and it's the pattern for salvation. It is suffering. It is sacrifice. So we come to the cross. We follow the pattern of the cross of suffering and sacrifice, and we go down the path of the cross and, and we follow him, and we walk with him. We go to Jesus. We sacrifice 
ourselves for Jesus. This is the picture as, as we see, as we begin to look. And, and so as we come onto the throne, you're going, wow, we have gone off, way off into, in, in, you know, away from worship into something totally different. But this is the grounds for it. This is the basis for it. This is why heaven is silent. This is why um, when they come and gaze upon the throne, it is a huge, huge deal. This is why no one no one, no body, no thing, no created being can ever be worthy to open this scroll. It is the lamb who was slain, and that is why he is worthy. And so we go to Jesus. We sacrifice ourselves for Jesus. We suffer whatever comes because of obedience to Jesus. And, and this has been true throughout the history of God's people, and it's true today. This is the truth of it all. And, and if you go back and you begin to study, look, remember, we go back to these seven churches. These people are tremendously persecuted. They're being, they're being used for sport, they're being sacrificed to, 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 the, to the Colosseum, to the games. They are being executed. They are being boiled in oil. There, there's all kinds of weird stuff that's being done to them, torturous things. And that is the path that they follow. They follow this path. They choose suffering and sacrifice. And by choosing suffering and sacrifice, they conquer. They conquer. Because as the world looks on them, something amazing happens. You see, God didn't fight violence with violence. He fought it with suffering and sacrifice. And it's true today. If you come and you study the history of the church, what you're going to find is that in times of persecution, the church explodes. It explodes. Not like blow up explode. I mean like it, it grows like wildfire. If you come in, uh, they say right now that one of the fastest places in the world the church is growing is in Iran. And Christians are just toast there. If you go back in, into the history of just Baptist history, if you come in in England, when, when, when the church was persecuted, when Baptist people were persecuted, at the greatest points, I mean, they're, they're killing them, they're, they're doing terrible things to them. The church is, is on a steep, steep climb of growth. They're reaching people. They're reaching people left and right. You know why? Because it's really easy to look at somebody that everything is great. Everything is great in their world. Everything's going fine. They have no struggles. They have no worries. They have no concerns. They have nothing. And, and why would you think, well, so what? But when you look at somebody who has, has everything going against them, and they are still worshiping their God, it gets people's attention. Because they're real. And, and those people, they weren't focused on things that didn't matter. Look, if you come back and you look, those Christians, they're not focused on the news of the day. They're not focused on world events. They're focused on the Lamb who was slain. They're focused on heaven. They're focused on the promise. They're focused on their hope. They're focused on the God 
who alone is their hope. And as they do that, people see it and they're drawn to it. They're drawn to that hope. They're drawn to that reality. So it's, it's been true throughout history. It's true today. And, and as we come in, we have to ask ourselves, do I understand suffering and sacrifice? Do I really understand that suffering and sacrifice is the way of the cross? I'm Really, when you put it in those terms, you say the way of the cross is suffering and sacrifice. It just makes sense, right? It really makes sense. It's logical. But to actually put it into place. So we come in and, and we look and go, wow, okay, so um, our God is a God who is a God of suffering and sacrifice. He's also a God of immense power. He is the lion. He is the root of David. But he chose to be the lamb who was slain. And then we come in and we see the lion. We go from the lion to the lamb to the ram. We go, the ram? Well, where's the ram coming in? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's the ram that's in, in there. It says, then I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes. And these are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So the seven horns, you've got the ram, the, the horns of the ram. And, and we'll come back into this. But as you come in, he has seven horns, which means that he has all power. Seven is when we come in and we see these numbers in there. Um, seven is the number of completion. It's a number of perfection. It's a number of total power. God has total power. He is omnipotent is the word that we use. He has full power. And then he has eyes all around, or he has seven eyes. And as we come in and see the seven eyes, the seven eyes means that he perfectly sees everything. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He is the God who is all-powerful. He is the God who is all-knowing. He is the God, and we see the seven spirits of God are the perfect perfection of what we looked at in John 15 and 16, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. He is manifest there and made known, and, and He has come and, um, and redeemed us. So as, as we come in this, we see the perfect power and the perfect knowledge of God. The Lamb, the Lion, and, and the Ram, they give us a picture of the power of God and the grace of God. We see His mercy as the Lamb. That's the mercy of God. And we see his justice as the ram. And we'll see this as we go on into the book. You know, the martyrs will, will cry out, how long, how long will you wait to judge them? Oh, God, how long are you going to wait? How long are these people going to get away with this? And, and we have to go back to this picture of the ram. That is the justice of God. God says, my justice will be served. Our prayers are being heard right now as you come in. He says, and, and then when he had the scroll, um, we see the, the 24 elders. They fell down before the lamb. They were each holding a harp and a golden bowl of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. So our prayers are being heard right now in the throne room of God. That's the next thing. You come in and you wonder, well, are my prayers being heard? I mean, it seems like I've been praying for this forever. I've been praying, 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 and praying, and it just seems like nothing happens. Nothing is happening. My prayers are, are bouncing off the ceiling, and, and then what we see here is there's golden bowls full of the prayers of the people of God. And, and we see the martyrs up in heaven crying out to God, how long? How long? How long? Must this go on? 
And God says, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. And as he tells us just a little bit longer, we see the picture of the throne and we see the picture of God and we see his perfect power and his perfect knowledge and we see that he holds all of history in his right hand on this scroll and it is perfectly sealed and he will unroll it and he will judge in perfection and and holiness. So when it seems like our prayers aren't being answered, we need to remember about the perfect power and the perfect knowledge of God and trust him. This is the picture that's coming out and, and we're seeing and, and we've got to come back into the context of the book. Remember the context of the book? John, he's severely persecuted. He's on, he's exiled on the island of Patmos. He is wondering. You know, what's he praying on that day? What's happening as he's worshiping God on that day? What's going through his mind as, as he feels the burden and the concern of these churches that he started? And these people that he knows who are dying for their faith and they're suffering for their faith and, and they're being persecuted for their faith. And he's looking and he's wondering, Jesus, I trust you, I worship you, I know you, but I don't understand. And, and this is where he comes. So as we come and, and we see, we see that suffering and sacrifice is the way of the kingdom. This is the way that it works. So as we come in, we we see the completeness of God, and we see it come here. And then we see in in verses 9 through 14 that the kingdom, the kingdom of God, will be comprised of the redeemed from the nations. The kingdom of God is made up of all the people, of all the ethnicities of the world, in the history of the world, worshiping at the throne. That's what the kingdom is in verses 9 through 14. And and verses 9 and 10 really kind of go with the, the the earlier scene, but they match in with this later one. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is what Jesus has done as we come back and we look at the suffering and sacrifice as the way of the kingdom and, and this praise that's going out. Um, and, and he says that we've been made into a kingdom. We've been made into priests to our God. And we have been made um, into a people who shall reign. We shall reign on the earth. This is, this is the promise. So it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and around the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lord who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the end of the third scene and, and, and all of the fourth one. Um, in, in verse 11, he says, And I saw again. It said, And there I saw. Um, so the message of revelation is also a message of mission. It's not just the sovereign God, the sovereign over all things, but it's the sovereign God who is reaching out to all peoples. 
That's his goal. The goal of God is to be known by all people, is that all people will have this opportunity to know him. And, and it's for us to understand that the gospel is for all people. It's, it's a global message. And, and that's one of the things that we as a church, we're, we are invested in. We're invested in it um, financially. We're invested in it through people. We're invested through people who go. We're invested from people um, who are connected to our church who are working overseas to reach people. Um, we just had a couple who were in our church who, who left to go um, over to do missions. They, they just went to Ukraine recently. They lost their visas over in Russia after um, all this stuff because Russia's getting worse and worse and worse about allowing people to come in. But, but they have moved to Ukraine, and now they're there. And, and you know, their, their prayer was, you know, pray for us because now that we got into Ukraine, everything's out of sorts. You know, there's war, there's, there's everything going on and, and looking at it. But in this, we have to understand and see that God is a God of mission. He is a God of redemption. He is a God who is reaching people from the nations all around and, and coming and, and he is there. So the gospel, it's not contained in any culture. Christianity, by the way, it's not even a Western religion. People say, oh, it's a Western religion. No, it's not. The roots of Christianity are in the east. Israel is about as eastern as eastern gets. As a matter of fact, it's called the Middle East. East. Eastern people carried the gospel to the west. Jewish people who became followers of Jesus, took the gospel to Rome and Spain. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Acts. The gospel is not cultural. The gospel transcends culture. The way that we gather and worship is a very valid expression of worship. But I don't think it's the only one. There are people who are worshiping all over the globe, and they're worshiping in all different contexts and places, some of them under trees out in, 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 a, in a hot climate. Some of them are hidden in a room downstairs. Some of them sing. Some of them don't. You, you know what the common denominator is? Suffering and sacrifice. Suffering and sacrifice, the worship of the lamb who is worthy because he was slain. And, and that's where it, it comes in. And, and so the gospel transcends culture because we have been ransomed from sin and shame and made slaves to God. We were slaves to sin and we're made slaves to righteousness. We think um, in, in, in our culture, in our culture, the, the greatest ideal is freedom, right? Scripturally, it's not. The greatest ideal is to be a slave to righteousness. The greatest, the greatest thing to aspire to is to be a slave to Christ. To be a slave to Christ. To be totally given to him. And, and that's where we have a problem. It's because we don't want to give up our autonomy because we don't trust God. But we have been ransomed 
from being slaves to sin and have been made slaves to righteousness. That's the plan and, and, and the purpose of the gospel. So redeemed people who engage the world that is lost in sin. That's when we come down and we see this picture. We are a redeemed people engaging the world that is lost in sin. In Titus 2.11, the scriptures say, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For all people. The message of the cross is for everyone. It's for every single person. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This was, this was an issue. If you read the book of Acts, this was an issue. And they had to work through it. It goes all the way to Acts chapter 15 to the place where the Gentiles come into the church. This was a big deal. All of a sudden, you have two different cultures clash. And in that cultural clash, they come to the realization, you know what? God has laid his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that's the message of the cross. Um, that's, that's the purpose of it. And, and so as we come in, we see that. And this, this is not something that's, um, that's new. This goes back to Genesis um, in the very beginning in the call of Abraham. When God calls Abraham, he says, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to the ethnos, to the nations, to the ethnicities. We think of nations in, in terms of boundaries. Nations means people groups. It's different cultures, different races of people. It's, it's different things going on. And, and God says, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to the nations. That, that was the purpose. That was the purpose of it all. This is where Israel went off the rails. They became nationalists instead of becoming missionaries. So the number, as we come here, <clears throat> we see these people worshiping, and they're worshiping around the throne. And, and then he says that I saw many, I saw the, the, around the throne, I saw the living creatures. So you got the living creatures. Then you've got the elders, their thrones around there. Remember last week we talked about you got the rainbow, the circular rainbow. You got the four creatures, living creatures. Then you've got the 24 elders. And then around the 24 elders, you've got the angels coming around. Myriads upon myriads, thousands of thousands. Myriad, a myriad, that was the biggest number in, for, for them. To, that's as high as they counted. They just counted to a thousand. They didn't have, you know, a million or whatever. And when they say that myriads upon myriads, they're saying it's countless. They're countless beings worshiping around the throne. Countless heavenly beings worshiping around the throne. Now look, when, when we um, do Bethlehem out here, we have these sweet little angels dressed in white and, and they look nice and, and, and they're very approachable. Look, when you see an angel in the Bible, you know what people do? They fall down as if they're dead. There are no sweet little angels. They are fierce, formidable creatures. And, you know, maybe Bethlehem will just scare people to death next time. <clears throat> we'll just have angels out there with fire and swords coming out of their mouth. 
But these creatures are worshiping around the throne. It's countless, countless. I mean, we see just a handful of them in the Bible named. But, but this is amazing. This is an amazing picture. These are fierce creatures around the throne of God. And, and as you see that, and then on the outside of that is humanity, the redeemed, worshiping at the throne. This is an amazing picture. And they're giving praise to the Lamb who suffered and sacrificed to defeat sin. That's what it is. So as we come in, and we'll look at scrolls next week, um, we see that God's plan to redeem humanity through suffering and sacrifice reveals some things. One, he has a plan. He has a plan. God knows your zip code. He knows your house address. He knows where you sleep. He knows what you need. He knows your hurts. He knows your desires. He knows your deepest longings. He knows all that stuff. He has a plan. Jesus alone is worthy. And he's worthy because he alone makes it all possible. And he made it possible through suffering and sacrifice. And that's the way of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom encompasses all of humanity. And, And that's where... As we come in, that's why we get this, this, this vision to see and to understand and to know. And, and we are such fortunate people that we live in a place where we, have, we do have a freedom to live out our faith. We do have a freedom to proclaim our faith. We do have a freedom to worship um, and, and not be afraid of physical violence against us or anything. But as we come in, we need to understand that the way of the cross is suffering and sacrifice. And <clears throat> we worship not because we will win, but because he has won. And we don't work to win. We don't, we don't do what we do so that we can win. Because Jesus has already won. We work from victory. Not towards victory. We work from victory. The battle's been won, and when we get a glimpse of the throne, we see how to live on earth. I mean, for me, it makes perfect sense. When, when John is worshiping on that rock, out in the middle of the ocean, wondering what's going to happen after everything that's been done to him, he gets a glimpse of what's real. He gets a glimpse of eternity. He gets a glimpse of the Lamb on the throne. He gets a glimpse of the fact that the victory has already been won and that God holds 
everything in his hand. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and and praise you. We thank you for the blessings that you've given to us, for the opportunity that we have to worship you, for the assurance that we have that you and you alone are worthy. Father, we pray that as we come to your table to worship, to remember, to think and ponder the cross, that you'll draw us close to you, and Father, that you'll prepare us for the things that you want to do in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. you'll take your little cup before we sing. Um, Jesus did this the night that he would go and suffer and sacrifice for us. And as we look at this, as we look at the the picture of of, of what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or, or maybe you grew up with being called the Eucharist or whatever it might be called. Um, it all means the same thing. It's a memorial to what Jesus has done for us. It's also a time of worship. It's a time to participate. It's a time to be drawn into everything there is about Jesus. But this morning as as we come, I want you to think about worship. The worship at the throne of the Lamb. And think about all of those creatures, all of those things around that throne. Think of the sounds and the noise and the roar. And everything that's being thrown down before Jesus And then think of all the people and all the experiences and everything that's happened and everything that they've been saved from and understand that there's absolutely nobody in this room who's unredeemable. There's nobody in this room that Jesus didn't die for. And there's nobody in this room who's not welcome to worship at the throne. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, which is poured out for many for the redemption of sin. He says, I tell you the truth, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine again from now on until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, there's a promise. He says that that this thing that we do here, these cheesy little cups with weird juice in them remind us that we have a future hope. And that future hope is, is glorious. It's, it's way greater than any suffering or sacrifice we could ever encounter on this place. Because we'll be in the presence of God Almighty 
for eternity with the holy roar of God's people of the heavenly hosts worshiping at the throne. Drink from it, all of you, is what he said. Then they sang. They, they, after they did this, Jesus, they, they sang a hymn and, and they walked. They walked from one place over onto the Mount of Olives where Jesus would be betrayed and the next day he would die on the cross for our sins. That's the picture. That's the hope. That's what Jesus is offering to us.